Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, and if you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 8. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis over the last few months. And if you remember back uh, when we started this series, I said that the book of Genesis can be divided into two parts. You have chapters 1 through 11, and then you have chapters 12 through 50. And the plan was to cover the first part and then take a short break for Advent and then come back and do the second part over uh, what will be most of next year. And so far, the plan has worked out. And so this morning, we're going to finish this first section of the book as we read the story of the Tower of Babel and set the stage for what's going to happen when we come back for part two. And so we're in Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so last week, we looked at how the descendants of Noah branched out and established distinct people groups with with different languages and different political and geographical boundaries. And I mentioned that chronologically, chapter 10 was out of order, that that it told us what happened, but it didn't explain why. But there there was something that caused that division among the peoples. Well, now as we move into chapter 11, uh, we are going to see what that something was. And that's sometime after the flood, when all people still had one common language, as the population continued to grow, people migrated uh, until they they came to a plain, a wide, flat uh, area of land in the, the region of Shinar, and they decided to settle there. Now, we're starting things on an ominous note here. Uh, And what the ESV renders in verse 2 as from the east is probably more accurately toward the east. And we've already seen a rhetorical pattern in Genesis uh, where as people move away from God's presence, they go eastward. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden to the east. And then Cain is expelled even further to the land that is east of Eden. So east is the direction where bad things happen. And and so as the people move eastward, I think this is a hint that they are going the wrong direction, literally and figuratively. And not only that, but if you remember from last week, we saw that the region of Shinar, it was Nimrod's territory. Uh, Nimrod was a, a powerful but wicked man. And so we can assume that he is involved in this story uh, somehow, which is another bad sign. Well, in verses 3 and 4, what what is implicit in the text begins to become explicit. The people say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And so while most of the first kinds of architecture throughout the ancient world would have used either rock or uh, clay or maybe even wood, uh, these people have figured out how to bake bricks and then join them together with, with bitumen or tar in order to construct buildings that would be stronger and more stable. And with this knowledge, they decide to build a large city with a giant tower with its top all the way into the heavens. Now today, when we think of a tower, we usually think of a skyscraper or, or some other kind of, of tall, skinny building. But people in the ancient world didn't have the capability of constructing in that way. And, and so instead, it's, it's almost certain that this tower it was what we refer today as a ziggurat, uh, a structure with a large base that has smaller buildings uh, on each level as you go up. And so we have a picture uh, of kind of what we're talking about here on the screen. Uh, so the, the tallest ziggurat that we are aware of had seven levels to it, and it measured almost 300 feet in height, which would be roughly equivalent to like a 20-story building with, with modern dimensions. And so this is, is something to the effect of what they were probably going for here. Now the why for all this comes at the end of verse 4. We see that the people want to build this city and this tower in order to make a name for themselves, lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And it's not clear to me what the logic is here. Why are they opposed to continuing to spread out? Uh, but from God's perspective, it's crystal clear that whatever they may be thinking, what is happening here is that the people are rebelling against his design. Right, where the Lord has called them to fill the whole earth, they want to all congregate here in this one spot. And while they've been created as God's image bearers to reflect his glory and goodness, these people want to make a name for themselves. And so in other words, this is an act of pride and glory seeking as they seek to build something that will draw attention to themselves, how smart and how powerful they are. Now already we've seen a number of acts of rebellion against the Lord in these first chapters of Genesis. And the one thing that they all have in common is that it never ends up going well for the rebels. Right? Resistance to the Lord never works out well in the end. And so next, we're going to see how the Lord responds to this new development as we pick up again, beginning in verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so as we pick up again in verse five, the Lord comes down to look at the city and the tower. And, and there's some sharp sarcasm in verse 5. Is it that the people have built this tower as, as a testament to the, the greatness of human ingenuity and, and wisdom. They want to build this tower that goes all the way up to heaven. But the text actually portrays it as being so small that God is not able to see it. He, he says, what are they doing way down there? I can't tell. I guess I'm going to have to go down and take a closer look. 
And so, in other words, they aren't even close. God is, is so high above the earth that compared to his majesty and his transcendence, this, this great tower is much more like a Barbie doll house or a Polly Pocket. And the point is, this is, this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. People may be impressed by this, but, but God is completely underwhelmed. Nevertheless, in verse 6, the Lord does recognize that all of the people being united together poses a problem. He says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And I don't think that we should read that to its most extreme, as if God thinks that people can literally do anything. But, but I think the point is that as one united people, it's far too easy for people to work together in, in rebelling against God's design. And so in verse 7, the Lord determines to confuse the people's language so that they will no longer be able to communicate and work together in this way. And as I was thinking about it this week, can you imagine what it must have been like the moment this happened? Right, so Ralph is, is laying some brick for the city, and he says, hey, George, bring me another load of bricks. I'm just going to uh, lay these out here, and, and then we'll blah, 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 blah. And, and Ralph says, huh? And George says, blah, 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 blah. And he says, uh, hey, Ted, can you come over here for just a second? I think something's wrong with, with George. And Ted looks at Ralph and says, Hakuna Matata? Right? And so and Ralph says, oh, no, not you too. You know, what's, what's wrong with you people? And very quickly, the people realize that they can no longer communicate with each other in the same way that they had been able to. And so I'm sure everyone stands around for a while trying to figure out what on earth is happening. But in time, small groups of people who can now speak the same language group up together and they go out to various locations and establish all of the geographical divisions that we read about last week in chapter 10. And verse 8 here notes that the city was left unfinished. And verse 9 explains that this is why the place came to be called Babel. The word Babel means confusion, and this is where the Lord uh, confused the languages of the world. So ironically, the thing the people wanted to avoid ends up being the very thing that happens, except even more so, because now not only are they all spread out, but they are truly divided from one another by having different languages. And so this is a, a built-in checks and balances system, because each individual group is going to begin working for their own interests, which is going to inevitably conflict with the interests of others, and that's going to prevent them from all uniting together in the same way ever again. Of course, that's not to say that all these various people groups are going to be faithful to the Lord from this point on, because we know that's certainly not true. And yet, despite the consistent resistance of humans to God's will, God has promised that he is going to bring salvation to humans through the seed of the woman. And, and we're going to see that the Lord does not neglect his promise, as we'll see beginning with verse 10. It says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. 
When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarug 270 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And so you'll remember that last week we looked at the segmented genealogy of all of Noah's sons and their descendants as the various people groups dispersed from the city of Babel. And now as we pick up with verse 10, we focus back on the linear genealogy of the chosen line of Shem, who received uh, the blessing from Noah back in chapter 9. And there's not a lot to say here in terms of noteworthy information, but I want to point out a couple of things just briefly. First of all, we see Peleg born to Eber in verse 16. And assuming that what we said about Peleg last week was accurate, uh, and that the time when the earth was divided was during his lifetime, then the Tower of Babel episode happened in the fourth generation, which would have been somewhere around 100 years, given the numbers that we see here, after the flood. And I also mentioned last week that while Peleg's lineage didn't receive any treatment in chapter 10, that it was going to be him who would continue the chosen line of Shem. And now we see his lineage continue through Reu, Serug, Nahor, and Terah. Then secondly, back in chapter 9, we saw that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And now here in verse 11, we see that Shem went on to live another 500 years after having Arpachshad. And I mentioned something similar to this back in chapter 5. Uh, but if you do the math, then it's possible, again, we don't know whether or not this actually happened, but it's at least possible that, that Noah and Shem would have been able to know every single person in this genealogy along with their siblings and, and to give them uh, firsthand information, an account of what life was like before the flood and what it was like to live on the ark for a year and then what it was like to come out of the ark into the new creation and to receive God's covenant promise never to flood the earth again. So there was at least an opportunity for a reliable and consistent testimony to God's salvation through judgment for several generations after the flood. And beyond keeping a record of, of the, the lineage, the other purpose of this genealogy is to move the story forward without getting caught up in a bunch of details uh, from the Tower of Babel to the next significant development of the story, which is what we're going to look at next. Uh, at least we'll get a hint about it as we pick up one last time in verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, 
And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so as we pick up here in verse 27, we see a more close-up look at the end of this genealogy. Uh, Once again, we come to an individual, Terah, who has three sons. This time it's Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We see that Haran has a son named Lot, and then in verse 28, Haran dies, what we would understand to be a premature death because it's, it's in the presence of his father. And then Abram and Nahor both take wives of their own, named Sarai and Milcah, respectively. And we also see in verse 30 that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. She is unable to have a child. Then in verse 31, Terah takes Lot, Abram, Sarai, and they leave their homeland. Uh, We see that after the Tower of Babel, Terah's clan had settled in the region of Ur, and their plan is to go live in the land of Canaan among Ham's descendants. And we're not told why that is, what what they're seeking to accomplish. But when they reach an area known as Haran, not to be uh, mistaken for Terah's son, they decide to settle there instead. And then we see that Terah dies at the age of 205, which leaves Abram as the head of the family. But as we've just seen, Abram is the head of a family without a son. And there's an there's a unfortunate irony here because the name Abram means exalted father. Uh, but in reality, it looks like there's very... Uh, little chance that that's ever going to be the case for him in reality. This also brings up the question of how is God going to be at work among all these different nations now as the story goes forward? And that is where we're going to pick up when we come back to Genesis after Christmas. So in our passage this morning, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, and we see what happened that caused the different nations of the world to disperse and to have different languages. And then we see the chosen line of Shem traced down to Terah and his son Abram. And this passage as a whole is a great reminder that human resistance to God's will can never stop God from accomplishing his purposes. Human resistance to God's will can never stop him from accomplishing his purposes. God tells the people to fill the whole earth. The people decide that No, they're all going to stay here together. God says, no, you're going to spread over the whole earth. And the people end up spreading over the whole earth. And of course, this is just one of many instances of this dynamic playing out over and over again across the storyline of Scripture. Over and over, people rebel against God, against his design, his commandments. And yet, God always accomplishes his purposes in spite of and sometimes through the very things that are intended to hinder them. And so this is seen most clearly in Jesus, who accomplishes salvation for God's people through his sacrificial death on the cross that happens through the the wickedness of the people who crucify him. And what's super interesting is that this story of, of, of the Tower of Babel and the salvation that Jesus accomplishes are linked together in, in the New Testament. And so in Acts chapter 2, as the early church is huddled up together in the city of Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven on the day of Pentecost and enables the disciples to speak in different tongues. And do you remember how Luke described the scene? He says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And while many of the the names have changed over the centuries, if you look at it, these regions in Acts chapter 2 are the exact same regions that are described in Genesis chapter 10. And so while God dispersed all the nations from one place at Babel, at Pentecost, God gathers them back together again. While God confused the languages of the peoples at Babel, he grants them understanding at Pentecost. I think we should acknowledge that Pentecost is not exactly a reversal of Babel because this is not a permanent development, but it is a foundational demonstration that through Jesus and the salvation he has accomplished, God is now gathering one new people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are united together through faith in Jesus. And so as we see this dynamic of God accomplishing his purpose, despite the arrogant resistance of people, both at Babel and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I want to end our time this morning with a word of warning and also a word of encouragement. So first of all, there is a warning here in this passage for those who oppose God's plans. What the people at Babel illustrate is the foundational sin of human pride, that the sin that is beneath every other sin. Pride is having an overinflated view of ourselves, which leads us to feel entitled to getting the things that we want the way that we want them, even when God has told us differently. And so God tells the people to fill the entire earth, and the people say, no, we want to do this instead. Right? God's word gives us all kinds of other commandments and instructions, but by nature, all of us say, no, this is my life, and I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to do what I think will make me happy. And friends, that's the problem, isn't it? We think that this is our life. We think that that life is about us and what we want. But we are reminded that we've been made in God's image for his glory. And when we decide to be the master of our own lives, we are attempting to take something that rightly belongs to God alone. And the scriptures couldn't be more clear that God is diametrically opposed to human pride. We read that pride goes before a fall, that God opposes the proud. And so if we insist on living our lives like the people of Babel, seeking after our own glory, then we position ourselves to be dealt with by God in judgment. The psalmist in Psalm 115 gets it much more correctly when he says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Friends, our lives should be devoted to bringing God glory 
as we seek to live in obedience to him in every way. And if we are not doing that this morning, then this text gives us a warning and a call to repent. And secondly, I also want to give a word of encouragement to to those of us who, however imperfectly, are seeking to live for God's glory in our lives. You know, it should be a comforting thought for us to to think about God's sovereignty over all things. People in this world make terrible choices that cause all sorts of pain and destruction. We all suffer various kinds of, of difficulty in the world. But the truth is that nothing happens outside of God's plan. And if anything does start to happen outside of God's plan, God is more than capable of intervening and stopping it, just as he does here at the Tower of Babel. Of course, that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy or that life is always going to be comfortable for us. I think most of us have probably already figured that out by now. But it does mean that we have an unshakable hope in Christ, that however difficult our journey may be, If if we follow the Lord, he will eventually get us to the other side because God always accomplishes his purposes. And he has promised us that in the end, all will be well. As the old song says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Church, if we live for God's glory, again, however difficult the journey may be, however much suffering we may encounter on the path of obedience, the Lord will bring us to the other side. And so this morning, let's remember that God always accomplishes his purpose and seek to live our lives accordingly as we look to him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. And as we have read this this story of human pride and resistance to your will and your act of of judgment that is nevertheless followed up with, with another track record of your faithfulness that is gradually leading us to Jesus, Lord, we are just thankful for your mercy. Time after time after time, you give us opportunities to repent of our sin and to come to you in faith and to follow you in obedience. And so, Lord, as we have read this story this morning, I pray that the truth that you always accomplish your purposes would take root in our hearts. Lord, that we would be warned and that we would be comforted as as the case uh, may need to be for where we are in life. And so as we take this time to respond now, I pray that your spirit would lead us to respond in line with your word. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.